Hey, what's up guys? Good to be back together again. And uh, I'm particularly excited this Sunday morning because we're kicking off this new series, Let Justice Roll. And um, there's a lot to this morning, I'm not gonna lie, there's a lot to get through. Um, and it might, it might be a little longer than our normal Sunday service sermons online. Um, so if you're, if you're intending to switch off after 15, 20 minutes, I'm pleading with you this morning, please don't. It's gonna go a little longer because what I wanna do is, I wanna do a biblical overview of justice, the theme of justice. What, what are we talking about when we talk about justice? Because when I say the word, um, I, I don't know if it's the same for you, but so much comes to mind. It's quite a burdened word. There's so much on it. We all have different kind of ideas and images of what justice means. So what I want to do this morning is go through the scriptures, and I really mean it, from the first page all the way through to the Gospels and explore what justice means biblically. What does it mean for us as followers of the way, followers of Jesus, to be people that acknowledge justice being a huge and critical part of our faith? Um, I want to explore some key terms, some key Hebrew words. I want to look how justice is infused in the Old and New Testament. And I want to talk about how justice really is a part of our everyday lives. How does this word justice find its way into my Tuesday afternoons and Friday mornings? So are you ready? You can say yes in your living rooms to that question. Um, I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive into this. Spirit, I thank you that we have the opportunity every single week to gather together online, though it is, and explore these ancient truths, to explore what it means to be people that live deeply and live fully, living awake and aware of what you're doing amongst us. God, we want to be people that exemplify your kingdom. We want to be people that represent Jesus. And this morning, I ask that my words would direct us along that path. And God, anything that I say um, that is infused with your heart, may it stay. And anything that, you know, isn't, God, let it just drift away. We're here to uplift your name and we're here to amplify your word. Amen. All right, guys, let's get started. Um, you know, this idea of justice is so often kind of a term used to describe something that you do, right? And I want to make the point this morning that justice, a conversation around justice, is more about who we are than what we do. Justice has been a part of the story from the beginning. So I'm actually gonna, I'm gonna jump around the scriptures. The, the, the passage that we're gonna live in this morning is the passage that is um, the title of our series, Let Justice Roll, and it's taken from Amos 5. So if you wanna open your Bibles to a passage, you can do that and you can camp out in Amos 5, um, but I'm gonna be jumping around. I'm gonna start right at the beginning. First page of the Bible, uh, chapter one of Genesis, verse 26, it says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is, this is a, the bedrock of justice. It's the bedrock of what we talk about when we're talking about justice. Humanity was made in the image of God, the image of the divine. You may have heard this phrase, imago Dei. It's a Latin phrase, but it's, it's basically an evolution of the Hebrew word for just the image of God, the Hebrew phrase, the image of God. Humanity 
was made in the image of God. In my Bible, I don't know when I wrote this, but next to that, next to that verse I have, the blueprint of humanity is divine. I probably stole that from someone else, but the very blueprint of our humanity is divine. So justice begins, the conversation around justice begins with who are we? We are image bearers of God. What does that mean? Every single human being who has ever lived, coming in all different shapes and sizes, expressions, every single human being who has ever lived has divine DNA, an imprint of the divine upon them, which means every human has the right to be dignified, treated with value and worth in the manner that you would treat God himself. I heard a theologian say something that I love. In, in, in the Old Testament, you see, you see God not allowing the Israelites to ever make an idol of him. And his comment was this, God didn't allow people to make an image of himself because he had already made an image of himself within them. God didn't want to be represented in any other form than the form he had already expressed himself. It says it right here. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. And it's so powerful. So if we, if we lived in that place, if we treated one another as image bearers of the divine, our world would look very different than it does right now. The problem is we haven't done that. And we haven't done it right from the beginning. And you know this story, but I'm going to do a sweeping overview of these scriptures to make this point. Humanity very early on in the story finds a way to corrupt this divine, you know, mandate that we're given to love one another, to treat the world with respect, to treat each other with respect. And we become self-serving and self-preserving. We learn what it means to have our own agendas and to manipulate situations and others to get those agendas across. We learn what it is to take advantage of those who are weak amongst us. We learn the power we get when we erode the, the opportunities others could have with our own self-serving ideas. And if you read through the Old Testament, you realize it's a story of humanity slowly becoming more and more corrupt, becoming more and more debased. And there's a point in the Genesis where God says, he raises up a man called Abraham and he says, you know what, I'm going to start a new family through this man, Abraham. I'm going to create a new family and this family eventually becomes the nation of Israel. And in verse 19, chapter 18 of Genesis, God says this, I have chosen him, Abraham, I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. How? Right? Because humanity has just gone off a crazy path. So I'm going to call Abraham to keep the way of the Lord. How? By doing righteousness and doing justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So God is commissioning this new expression of family, of humanity in its purest form through Abraham. And he says how, he, how he's going to do it is by doing righteousness and justice. All right, so we've got these two, two words already right at the beginning, righteousness and justice. And as I said, we have different connotations, different ideas, different images that come to mind when I say these two words. When I talk about righteousness, for me, it often looks like being a good person. That's often what I think about, you know, being good. I'm a good guy, being a good person. 
The issue is from the beginning up until this point, humanity has defined good and evil by their own terms, not by God's. And where, it has, where has it got them? Corruption, right? Manipulation. So it seems as though when we define what good is by our own agenda, it doesn't work in the favor of everybody else, right? So that's why we've got to dig a little deeper. What does it mean when he says to Abraham, do righteousness and justice? Well, let's go back to the very root of this word. It's a Hebrew word, shedakah, right? It's the Hebrew word for righteousness. And if you say shedakah today, you, you'll be talking about something close to, in English, charity, a term that describes the manner in which you help someone else. So righteousness, shedekar, doing shedekar, doing righteousness, isn't so much about being good by your definition of what it is to be right, but remaining in right relationship with everyone, not by your own agenda, but in the manner which helps them, empowers them, serves them, shedekar, right? And ultimately what shedekar does is it treats people with Imago Dei. It treats people as someone made in the image of God. Shedekar, in its purest form, is restoring someone's identity back to being that of the blueprint of the divine. It's treating someone to the point they're convinced that they're not what they've done, what has been done to them, or what they could possibly do in their life. They are defined by being someone who's an image bearer of God. That's what Shedekar means. And then the word justice is a Hebrew word, mishpat. Now, mishpat, it, in, when I say justice, I, I often think initially about the consequence to a wrongdoing, right? I've done something wrong, perhaps I've stolen something, you paid the penalty for doing that. But mishpat, although it does mean that, which you would call um, retributive justice, throughout the scriptures, it's more common, oh, I get giddy talking about this, it's more commonly used in the context of restorative justice. What do I mean by that? Well, it's one thing for justice to be the consequence for a wrongdoing. It's another thing to seek out where there are injustices, where people have been taken advantage of and restoring them. Mishpat talks about going further finding those who have been mistreated, finding systems that don't represent God's intention for humanity and bringing reformation so that it doesn't happen again. Mishpah isn't just consequence. Mishpah is about restoration, about going the extra mile. And uh, when you think about it in that context, you realize, oh, these have much deeper, much more subversive, much more nuanced meanings than we often describe them with, Mishpah. Mishpat ultimately is a radical, selfless lifestyle. So when God says, I'm creating again, I'm, I'm establishing this new family that will be defined by Shedekar and Mishpat, righteousness and justice, this is what I mean by it. You will go into the world and you will treat everyone with the dignity and respect and worth that I have given them through being image bearers of me. And you will go into the places of the earth where that hasn't happened and you will bring restoration. And that, according to Genesis 18, 19, is how the Lord would bring his promises to fulfillment through Abraham. 
And this is all through the scriptures. Let me dig in a little bit. These two words, righteousness and justice, shedekah, mishpat, move, position together. Proverbs 31, 8. What does it mean to bring about justice and righteousness? What does it mean to do that? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. Jeremiah 22, verse 3, moving into the prophets. This is what the Lord says, uphold justice and righteousness. Mishpah and Shedekah. Deliver from the oppressor those who have been robbed. Do not mistreat or do violence to the immigrants, the orphan or the widow, or shed the blood of innocent people in this place. Keeping in the tradition of the prophets, Isaiah 56, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. It's all through the Hebrew tradition. This matters to God. Righteousness and justice, these aren't just footnotes to the faith. These aren't just add-ons, right? This is a central expression of what it means to be a follower of the divine. Psalm uh, 146, this is interesting. This is where we're gonna introduce the third Hebrew word I wanna explore. Psalm 146, who executes justice for the oppressed? Who gives food to the hungry? The Lord. The Lord sets the prisoner free and thwarts the way of the wicked. Thwarts the way of the wicked. We have righteousness, we have justice, and this word wicked, this Hebrew word which is rasha. I love the sound of that word, rasha. And uh, rasha effectively means someone who has done wrong, someone who is guilty, right? Um, but more specifically, Rasha is it attributed to someone who has mistreated another. So that word wicked is about someone who hasn't fulfilled the divine manifesto of treating every person you ever meet as image bearers of God himself. That is Rasha. That's why there is such a theme throughout the scriptures of God bringing restoration wherever there's been oppression. Because Rasha is, is the highest form of treason, of treason, of moving away from our beginning manifesto to rule and reign in creation with God himself. So we have this, um, this amazing kind of, you know, set up to the scriptures. This is what matters to God. The Israelites go on and you guys know this story and what happens later through the pages is the Israelites as a nation become enslaved by the Egyptians, they become enslaved. Their day-to-day -day life is about making bricks, right? Building bricks for Pharaoh. And uh, God announces the Egyptians to be Rasha, the wicked, those who are enslaving and oppressing others. So you know how the story goes. He raises up the ancient abolitionist Moses. And I'm gonna come back to Moses at the end of this message, but Moses to set the captives free to release the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. And he does just that in the most epic, poetic drama you'll ever find. Um, but as the story goes on throughout the Old Testament, we find that the Israelites themselves become the oppressors. All through the scriptures, we see these different situations when Israel as a nation, this family that had this Abrahamic blessing to be God's image bearers and, and God's representation on earth, start oppressing others. Their kings are corrupt. So what does God do? He sends the prophets. 
Oh, I love the prophets, man. The, the tradition of the prophets is to bring disruption to the system as it stands, right? God speaks through the prophets by calling the nation back to who they were always meant to be and how they were always meant to represent God. And that brings us all the way up to the scripture that we have as our kind of core scripture for this series, Amos 5. So your Bibles may already be open there. If they're not, you can open them up. I'm going to open up mine there. Amos, uh, yeah, Amos 5. And I'm going to read from verse, I'm going to read from verse um, 21. Now let me give you some context. Who was Amos? He was a shepherd and a fig tree farmer, right? That's what he did. That was his life. He was a very normal man. He lived in the south of Israel and he lived um, in this time where Israel was corrupt. The, the Israel was at a point where they were oppressing people. They had a king called Jeroboam. It was Jeroboam II, I believe. And he had uh, basically taken over a lot of land he had conquered a lot of new territories and it had made him incredibly wealthy. And he became a very passive king. And in his passivity, Israel started idol worshiping again. They started raising idols and temples to worship gods other than their God, the true God, Yahweh, right? And they were oppressing people. They were enslaving people. And it got to a point where Amos, this humble shepherd fig tree farmer, couldn't take it anymore. He couldn't take it anymore. Do you feel like that sometimes? I feel like that sometimes. He couldn't take it anymore. The system was corrupt and it had to change. So what did he do? He went from where he lived in the southern area of Israel and he walked north to a place called Bethel. I preached about that spot a few weeks back where there was a big temple where a lot of people would come and worship and pray. And the book of Amos, man, if you haven't read this book, read, this, read the book of Amos, man. It's short. It's, it's, I think, nine chapters. He goes to the temple and he just camps out there and he starts spitting fire. He's sermons, poems, stories, prayers, visions. He just stands at the temple and he starts speaking the word of God to this nation in the hope and the aim that they would hear him and return to their initial mandate, right? And so the book of Amos is, is the collection of those announcements and statements that he made. So I'll just do it real quick. Chapters one to three um, is basically Amos just lamenting over how corrupt Israel has become. He, he, he's speaking to them about what they're doing, the oppression of the poor. They, they were enslaving the poor. Like it's just, they were, in, they were selling the poor as slaves. And, and it ends, that section ends with him saying, is this not the family of God? Is this not the tribe that was called through Abraham to be a reflection of who God is, right? And then verses three to six, he starts getting, he starts getting specific to the point that, I don't know, man, I feel it. It's challenging. They're ancient words that just wrap themselves around my bones today. I'm going to read from it. Chapter five, he's getting to this point where he's speaking to the wealthy and the privileged. Woe to you, right? This can't stay. This has to change. And this is where we get verse 21 from. Check this out. He says this, speaking as a prophet, announcing the word of God. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts. 
I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delights in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. Take away from me the noise of your songs. Take away from me what you think is an expression of worship and praise and celebration. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. Or if you were speaking today, your six string guitars, the melody of your harps, I will not listen. And then he says this, but let justice roll like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. Amos is saying, if you want to worship God, it looks like doing justice. Yeah, your celebrations might be epic. They might look amazing. They might sound phenomenal. But if you're not doing justice, if you're not doing Mishpah and Shedekah, if you're not doing these things, you are not worshiping. Jesus said, there will be a day that, that you worship in spirit and truth. Amos is saying, this isn't worship. This isn't worship. The reason God doesn't hear you is because you have neglected the very thing you were commissioned to do in the beginning. The thing that would define you as a nation under God, as a family that represented Yahweh to do justice and righteousness. And in your forgetting to do that, everything you're doing now, in effect, is nullified. I, I, I can't read this without it just searing through my skin and touching my soul. Like, I hate your songs. As a songwriter, you know, as, as an artist, as a preacher, as someone who leads, you know, oh, it matters today. These are the words of the ancient prophet, but it matters today because often in our tradition of church, we, um, we attribute the prophet as someone who speaks about what's coming. And it's, it is that, but throughout the scriptures, the prophet is also the one who speaks about what is. The prophet speaks about the present. The prophet is the voice that speaks to the systems, that speaks to the establishments and the institutions, to the individuals, to the families and communities and nations and says, it has to change. And dare I say it, church, I might get in some trouble for saying this, but sometimes the most prophetic voices in our cultures don't come from the churches. Because sometimes it takes a fig farmer, right? A shepherd from a humble little town in Israel to make his way north to the temple to actually announce what God is saying. And I'm called to attention when I read this. I can't help but feel the conviction and the power of the ancient prophet Amos speaking today unless we embrace justice, mishpah and righteousness, shedekah, that which we deem as worship and sacrifice is unheard by God. Do you feel that? Oh, all right. It's easy to look at those who do injustice as people that you would never become like, right? I know that for myself. I, uh, I look at where there's oppression and injustice today and I think it's, it's that kind of person. But the scriptures tell us from beginning to end, amplified more than ever in the New Testament, 
that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus, in his, in his Sermon on the Mount, that's his greatest hit, man. If you want to ever just communicate to someone who Jesus is, this Jesus that you follow, just tell them to read the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, right? The Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the sons of God, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Jesus rolls out what it means to be a follower of Christ. And as he's preaching, he says, I say to you, though you've heard different, if someone slaps you on one side of your face, give him the other side of your face. I say to you that though you had a definition of what murder was, if you murder someone in your mind, you're guilty of it. I say to you, though you defined adultery, if you think lustfully about someone in your mind, you have committed adultery. That's Jesus, right? So what Jesus is saying is all of us, all of us have committed rasha, that word wicked. All of us have done it. Because even if you can say, I've never hurt a living soul physically, you know, but have you done it in your mind? It's, it's not hard to recognize, yes, we all have. And so the way the story rolls out after the prophets, you know, right at the end, We've got the Old Testament and it spills into the New Testament and we have the prophet John the Baptist. I love John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness, looking crazy, eating locusts and honey, preparing the way of the Lord, right? This prophet speaking and he speaks, right? He's announcing there is one who is coming as a final prophet. There is one who is coming that I'm not even worthy of tying the sandals of. And then who arrives? It's Jesus. Because the prophets could deal with the injustice that we see out here, but it's only Jesus who can deal with the injustice, the rasha, the wickedness that lives in here. The scriptures tell us that the wages of sin are death. That sounds like heavy, heavy language. And let me break it down for you. Have you ever done something that you know, you know deep in your soul is wrong, right? I heard a rabbi say, sin is the disturbance of shalom. Sin is simply the disturbance of peace. Have you ever done that? Have you disturbed your peace? I have. If I tell a lie, just to let you all know, I have lied before. Uh, I know you're gasping, you're shocked. If I tell a lie, it only leads to destruction. It only leads to bigger lies. It only leads to death. Sin leads to death. Rasha leads to death. And so Jesus comes, right? And Jesus spends three, I could cry talking about this, man. This, Jesus comes and spends three years, right? Doing Shedekah and Mishpah, righteousness and justice. He spends three years restoring the original divine manifesto, the image of God in every person. He looks at the outcast. He looks at the exile, the immigrant the downtrodden in such a way that dignifies them to the point that they might just believe, oh, I have divine image upon me, right? He spends three years doing that. And the three years ends, as you know, with him on a cross, right? Because we can't handle it. The religious leaders, the Roman Empire comes together to kill this man who is fully God for doing the works of Mishpah and Shedekar. And at the kind of climax of human wickedness, we put him on the cross. 
and the one who has always faithfully done righteousness and justice dies the death of the wicked. He's crucified between two thieves. Another theologian I love said it like this, the the incarnation was, was God's decisive redemptive act through which he set us, in case you don't know, incarnation basically means the enfleshment, God becoming man, God becoming flesh. The incarnation was God's decisive redemptive act through which he set us free from root to fruit, from the dominion of sin and the domination of sin, the corruption of fallen sinful nature and the condemnation of death itself. And so on the cross, Jesus dies to defeat the consequence of our sin, death itself. He dies the death that we were destined for. He pays the price. He bears the consequence. It's both retributive and it's restorative. He dies the death worthy of a thief and yet he restores the thief back to its, his or her fullness and in identity. It's just, it's the gospel. It's what we're all here for. It's why we have hope. It's why we have something to give someone. Because through Jesus, we have the purest image of justice and righteousness. And it doesn't end there, my friends. It doesn't end there because he is resurrected. Why did Jesus have to die? So that he would be resurrected. So that new life would come. As Edmund once said to me, the inauguration of the kingdom. The kingdom that Jesus spoke about. The kingdom that is here and the kingdom that is coming. The kingdom that restores everything back to its initial, original plan. In the, resurrec- in the resurrection, there is the inauguration, the beginning of this new life that we are all welcomed into to participate within. And the early church, they understand this. The, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he says, He that knew no sin... He who had never committed sin became our sin. He who had never disturbed the shalom died the death of those who had. So we could become, check it out, his righteousness. He that knew no sin became our sin so that we could become his righteousness. No matter how hard you try, you will never fulfill the initial manifesto manifesto given to Abraham to do justice and righteousness. But through Christ, crucified and resurrected, we can. Through Christ, we receive his righteousness. But the early church, they did not take this as some status. They did not take it as some badge of honor. They took it as vocation. It led them into action. And so the book of Acts is just filled with people doing justice and righteousness, restoring people back to the image that they were born to represent God himself, right? Through feeding the poor, through helping the marginalized, through driving out demons, eh? through healing the sick through doing the works of Christ. They represented the kingdom here on earth, the kingdom that is here and the kingdom that is coming. That's why I'm a follower of Jesus, man. Not to belong to a a group, not to wear a badge, but to genuinely walk this earth with this offensive hope that says, death isn't the end and there is a better system. There is a better way of being a human in the kingdom that Jesus is king of. Oh, I'm preaching now. Imago Dei. Imago Dei. 
made in the image of God. We were made righteous when we didn't deserve it. And so our great commission is to do that for everyone else. The work of righteousness and justice, biblically, is to give to others what they do not deserve. When you forgive, you restore. When you let go in grace, you restore. When you serve someone who cannot give you anything back, you restore. And so when Jesus told us to love our neighbor, when Jesus reeled out the manifesto in the Sermon of the Mount, he was echoing the statement, the great announcement from the prophet Micah, which was this, do justice, do justice, love mercy and walk humbly. I'm nearly done. And I'm not just saying that as the preacher who was always like, oh, I'm nearly done halfway through. I'm nearly done. I just want to end with something really specific, really practical. You might be sat there being like, cool, all right. I've got, I've got an idea for what we talk about when we talk about justice biblically. I'm getting a sense of that. All right, cool. Where do I start? Well, this series that we're doing over these next few weeks throughout September, that's what we want to explore. What does this look like for us in our cities, in this church, in our life groups? What does it look like? And we're going to have a point in the series where we actually hear from people that are doing works of justice and righteousness. And we learn how we can serve them and support them. But I just want to go back to Exodus 4 when I talked about briefly Moses, the ancient abolitionist, as I've come to, na- to, to call him. Um, I want to talk about him for a second because he had a moment where he'd been a shepherd for years, just like Amos, a shepherd. That's all he was. He wasn't anything but a shepherd in the desert, right? And God met him in the wilderness. In the mundane nature of his life, God met him through the bush that was ablaze with fire and yet not consumed. And God said to him, Moses, I'm calling you. I'm calling you to go to Egypt and to free my people, to free them from slavery. Just like many people have done thousands of years, over thousands of years, an abolitionist. The system has to change. And Moses says, how can I do that? Who am I to do that? And God says to Moses, hey, Moses, what is in your hand? Exodus 4. Moses is standing there as a shepherd. He says, my staff, my shepherd's staff, that's what's in my hand. And God says, throw it upon the ground. And he throws it upon the ground and it becomes a snake. And then it becomes the staff again. It, and Moses says, God says to Moses, show that to them. And then they'll know who sent you. Moses, I'm going to use what you use every single day to do something extraordinary that reveals who I am in your life for the goodness and the service and the redemption of others. I'm not asking you, Moses, and you listening to me right now, I'm not asking you to become a superhero. I'm asking you to utilize that which you use every day for the works of justice and righteousness. For me personally, I'm a poet. I've worked with words since I was nine years old. And through the encouragement of the Spirit, I've been able to use my words to fight for justice and work with those fighting on the front lines of human trafficking, anti-human trafficking, those working in reform in education, those working to help people with addiction. Right now, I'm in the process of setting up a charity where I'll continue going, going into prisons and sharing poetry with prisoners and helping them learn to to recite and write their own poetry for the freedom of their souls, though they're inside caged doors. I'm learning as a kid that has been horrifically dyslexic and always felt like words were 
a difficult point for me. I'm, I'm realizing God can use it. Right now, my uncle Michael, Michael Smith, who, who heads up the helps team, he goes out to tour and every Tuesday, two till four. I'm gonna be there on Tuesday. You can come join us Tuesday, every Tuesday, just cleaning up the streets of Twerton. That's what he's doing. We all have something so simple that we can use and utilize to serve the people around us. I just don't think there's any capping to what we can do as a people in representing Christ and his kingdom in this area. Are you with me? Do you feel me? Can I get a yes and amen if you believe that? I want to end with a prayer. This is a, um, this is a prayer that's attributed to the Franciscan order, St. Francis's order, and I love St. Francis. And uh, uh, this, is a, this is a prayer, speaks to me like a poem, and I'm just going to read it to you as a, as a benediction, as a commissioning, um, as we end the, uh, the time together today. All right, let's position ourselves to pray. May God bless May God bless you with discomfort. Discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you may live deep within your heart. And may God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression, and the exploitation of people so that you may walk for justice, freedom, and peace. And may God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer pain, rejection, hunger, and war, so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and turn their pain to joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in this world, so that you can do what others claim cannot be done and bring justice and kindness to all people and the poor. In Jesus' name, amen.